кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Годом вас. С новым веком. Two weeks after Russian warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin launched and then abandoned an insurrection that shook Vladimir Putin's regime to the core, the fallout, repercussions, and consequences continue to unfold. Prigozhin's whereabouts remain a mystery, with reports first placing him in Belarus, then in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. The fate of his assets, including the Wagner mercenary group, is still unsettled, and while one of Prigozhin's main allies, General Sergei Surovikin, remains missing, Vladimir Putin has yet to launch widespread reprisals against enemies, real and imagined, at least not yet. But one thing is clear. Putin's Russia, after Prigozhin's insurrection, is in a very different place than wet than it was before. Just how different? Well, I got three awesome guests to help us unpack it all and get a lot smarter, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. is my old friend Maria Snegovaya, a senior fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., where he is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service and the author of the recently published article, Why Russia's Democracy Never Began. Welcome back to The Vertical, Maria. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming. And also joining us from across the Atlantic in the awesome city of Berlin is Mikhail Zigar, a columnist for Der Spiegel, founding editor-in-chief of the independent Russian TV news channel Dusht, and author of the must-read books All the Kremlin's Men and the recently published War and Punishment, Putin Zelensky in the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Welcome back to The Vertical, Mikhail. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. I got my copy in the mail yesterday, so thank you, and we'll be we'll be doing a show on that going forward. But today we got another thing on the agenda. Um, also joining us from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thank you. So it seems to me that Putin is caught on the horns of two dilemmas right now uh, in the wake of Prigozhin's aborted insurrection. First, given the fact that in Russia we have a divided elite and a disaffected public, one would assume that Putin's natural instinct would be to dial up the fear in the system with a purge of the elite to reestablish his control. But other than General Suvorikin's disappearance, there seems to be little sign of this. And this raises the question, is the system strong enough at this point to withstand the shock of a purge and a repression of the elite. So the question remains whether that option is even open to Putin. Second, if Putin cannot rely on fear, he is left only with largesse, bribery, and buying off the elite. He's increased the salaries of military, police, and security services by 10.5%. He's also granted Viktor Zolotov's request for tanks and artillery for Rosgvardia, the Russian National Guard, which he heads. Putin's system has always prioritized loyalty over competence, and doubling down on that now will only make it weaker still. 
So just to, to get us rolling, I wanted to get each of you to weigh in with one simple question. How much trouble is this regime in at this point? And what are the first two weeks post-insurrection tell us? Mikhail, why don't we start with you? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, yesterday I, I had a very interesting conversation with a very trusted source uh, that confirmed uh, to me the fact that Evgeny Prigozhin was seen in St. Petersburg. Okay. So he's not, he's not in Belarus. He's not in Central African Republic. He is back in his hometown. Um, he's safe and sound. He is walking along the streets. And yes, he really uh, came to the FSB, to the local FSB office to get his um, weapons back. Um, so it's even even it's even more bizarre than uh, it seemed to be a week ago. So Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin hasn't fled uh, to Belarus. He's not hiding. He's not destroyed. Uh, yes, his his business is over, and yes, his troll factory is not working anymore. We we obviously see it because it's it's visible because there are no um, thousands of disgusting comments uh, on every Russian independent uh, uh, news media. So so yes, uh, financially, um, economically. Uh, he's gone, but physically he's still alive, uh, and so yes, that means that mm, that President Putin decided not to punish him that hard as he could, or maybe he just he um, that that was not uh, his strategy. So yeah, uh, ac actually, I was expecting s some kind of a purge, and I know that the General Surovikin is under house arrest, and everyone was expecting something. But mm, it's not happening so far. What do you make of this, Mikhail? You're an experienced journalist, an ex uh, experienced observer of Russian affairs. Uh, there, there are a few in your league in this in this regard. What do you make of this? Because I'm trying to wrap my head around. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm afraid that that I won't explain you everything because we definitely know, um, if not quite a little, but we don't know the we don't see the full picture. You know, I. Um, uh, that's that's the reason why I started writing books, not a newspaper article. <laughs> uh, find out the full picture. You need um, several years to uh, to interview a lot of people to get a lot of information. And uh, uh, the Prigozhin surprising was was one of the turning points in uh, in the recent political yeah. history of Russia. And we still don't know a lot. We don't we. We know that we don't know why it has started. We know that we don't know why it was over. As we know that we we, we still don't know where are um, the Wagner people. Uh, we probably know where is Prigozhin, but we don't know what's go what's the deal. What was the deal between him, or what was his counterpart Lukashenko, or or what uh, or was it just a, a myth? Um, um, yeah, I don't believe it was Lukashenko. I never believed it was Lukashenko. Um, I thought Lukashenko kind of was, was brought in for the optics, uh, but I don't think it was Lukashenko's initiative. But this is just bizarre for several reasons. Putin's famously vindictive, right? Um, you know, this is a crime syndicate. You come at the king, you best not miss. And at least what we see on the surface, Prigozhin came at the king and he missed. Um, and so I'm just, I mean, I can't believe he's walking around St. Petersburg. I find it utterly bizarre. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Just uh, to sum up, at least about Putin, we know one thing: that he's never uh, too quick to respond. He always mm -hmm. takes time. 
Yeah. He always waiting. He wants, he, he, uh, he, he always wants everyone to come down, everyone even to forget about the inevitable revenge and then he strikes. So I think we, we need several months for him to wait right. and he, he is, he's going to strike again because, uh, obviously everyone is discussing what's, what's next with the presidential election because next year Putin has to be reelected and ev everyone has to start preparing themselves for the uh, re-election campaign. So, so that's, that's the obstacle. So obviously he has, he has to, um, right. to strike again, but he, but he's, uh, he always wants to, to make the plan of the revenge. So probably that's what's happening right now. Maria, would you agree with that? What do you, what do you, what do you see Maria? How do you, how much trouble do you see this regime in and what do you make of the last two weeks, particularly the last couple of days? Yeah, I certainly uh, echo uh, Mikhail's comments on uh, the whole situation. I wanted to follow up on his point that Putin is taking time. And it may be a sign of weakness or a sign of things going on as usual. The fact that Putin was actually fairly slow to respond to this whole uh, development, right? For example, uh, take the Security Council that would only hold one Monday. Uh, so two days after the whole mutiny, the situation has been unraveling. And uh, uh, now, though, it's at least from the public uh, picture perspective, it seems that uh, the regime has gone into full damage control mode. You see Putin constantly meeting with the people, you know, cheering crowds, showing that they can just uh, cannot help but express the love, like pour this love on Putin, um, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that is very visible. I think uh, uh, the fact that uh, what Mike uh, Mikhail said about the... Um, 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 like the slowness, the delays in response on Putin's side, and at the same time, this chaotic somewhat damage control, I think uh, 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 somewhat reflect this disarray uh, that's happening within the Kremlin. Uh, on the um, purges and disappearance of certain um, generals, along with Surovikin, I think it's worth pointing out that um, British intelligence, uh, that is doing a great job recently, by the way, uh, has recently also reported that another... Um, Person, specifically Deputy Defense Minister Colonel General Yunus Bekhivkurov, also was uh, absent. And uh, probably just another indication that some sort of internal investigation is going on. Uh, now, um, going forward, and this is a big question, right? I completely agree with uh, um, the argument that we really lack a lot of information. First of all, like uh, those, it was hard to expect. Uh, what happened, and second of all, uh, we don't really know a lot of uh, things around it. But one thing for certain, to me, uh, this is the biggest uh, candidate to black swan Putin's regime has um, faced yeah. so far, in the sense that it certainly exposed uh, this internal hollowness and weakness of the regime to the level unprecedented before, and I think not just to us, but also to the Kremlin itself, right? Which may or may not be why uh, they kind of that slightly lost in how to react. Uh, from that perspective, I'm sure that this precedent will at, at least create some wannabe contenders uh, for privileged yes. status in the future. And I think this is far from over, but I agree that, of course, everything is still in development. Yeah, no, and Maria, you correctly said in, a, in a, an event we both appeared at yesterday at the Atlanta Council, the, the actions of the regime reek of desperation right now. Um, and it, I think that's that's completely true. Um Jeff, we're kind of back to our grandfather's Kremlinology here, aren't we, man? It's like we're we're basically looking at at that trying to piece together data points 
Uh, you know, and it, it reminds me of the, oh, you know, who's standing next to whom on the mausoleum uh, on May Day back in, in, in the old True. days. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, I, I recently, yeah. I'm sorry, I, I, I recently had, had that kind of negotiation, um, the, uh, conversation analyzing the fact that the, the prosecutor general Krasnov was the closest one uh, to Putin and that means a lot. I'm sorry. Right. No, that's that that's that's true. That's a good point, Miguel. Jeff, how do you from the data points we can see uh, mm -hmm. what connections, what kind of conclusions can you draw right now? Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of the the main points have already been said. I mean, I would add, I guess, a couple of things. You know, you made the uh the Omar Little uh from the wire argument about coups that uh if you come for the king, you best not miss. Uh I think it's important to keep in mind here that at least by way of intention, Prigozhin didn't come for the king. He came for the defense minister. He came for the, the commanding general. So, I mean, this is clearly a problem, but I, I do think there's some sense in which, you know, he, I don't think his intent was to shake the foundations of the Putin regime as such. Now, it probably has done that for the reasons that Mikhail and Maria have laid out. But I think it's also different in that sense because, you know, unlike somebody, say, like Alexei Navalny, who if... You know, he were out of prison and organizing some kind of, of opposition march against the Kremlin, I think would have been treated very differently because his objective is, you know, fundamentally different. It's to shake the, the underpinnings of the regime as such. Whereas I think Prigozhin and a lot of these kind of ultra patriots that the Kremlin has tolerated and even encouraged over the course of the last couple of years have a much more complex relationship to the state. And of course, it's not just Prigozhin, but it's all the people around him, including some who are participating in this coup. And clearly, they still have influential connections, power, patrons um, within the system. And so I, I think there's an open question about how much capacity the regime actually has right now to go after some of these people. I don't think that Prigozhin is a political orbs in the sense that he probably commands the loyalty of a number of people with guns, even at this point, um, and directly going after him could create further fissures, could create further instability. And as both Mikhail and Maria have pointed out, the Putin regime's MO is typically to do things quietly over the longer term at a time when it's not expected in the shadows. So I imagine that this game is going to continue to play out, but the fact that they can't do it out in the open is in and of itself an indication of, of a kind of weakness. I mean, do you think this regime is in trouble? I mean, we've predicted the fall of this regime, many of us have, over the years, and we've been wrong every time, but this feels different. Well, what I would say to this point is that it's fragile, and things can be fragile without breaking uh what depends what what ultimately determines whether they break is what kind of shocks they're exposed to um you know maybe this is the biggest black swan that putin has confronted in his 23 years in power uh i think one good analogy uh from an earlier period in his reign was the sinking of the kursk mm -hmm. submarine uh early on which similarly caught putin off guard he didn't really know what to do procrastinated, tried to put off, you know, giving a, a response as the anger was was just kind of building. And I, I think this is not a regime that's built to be um, responsive. It's not built to 
um, incorporate feedback. It's increasingly, and we've seen this especially since the pandemic, it's become increasingly inward focused and isolated from currents of things that are going on on the outside. So I think for all of these reasons, that fragility is is greater, but whether or not it actually crumbles depends on a lot of things like black swans that it's very hard to, to predict. I think Maria's right that probably other people are going to get ideas uh, from what Prigozhin did and from the response that he engendered. Because keep in mind, when this happened, it's not like there was a rush of people out into the streets to show their patriotism to confront the the mutineers, you know, to throw themselves in front of the tanks. I mean, if anything, it might be the opposite, actually. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's pretty telling and probably something that's going to uh, put some ideas in the minds of, of other people who may have thoughts about uh, creating some kind of political change. Now, the one thing I would say in that context, though, is that there's nobody who has the the profile or the resources to do that that Prigozhin had, unless we're talking about somebody who's within you know, the military high command. And I'm sure that there's a lot of, or the, well, or Viktor Zolotov, who is like the right. ultimate loyalist. So I, I think, you know, imagining who could play the Prigozhin role in act two of this play is, is a little hard to picture right now. But certainly the fact that he came so close to, you know, completely bending things, I imagine would, would give courage to, to somebody else at multiple points on the political spectrum who might be nursing similar ideas. I mean, if this if this causes the regime to 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 collapse, I don't think it's going to be from another march on Moscow by men with guns. I think what it's going to do is it's going to expose that Putin can no longer fulfill his function in the system. Right. This is a I mean, this is a, a system based on patronage networks. Right. It's not based on institutions. It's based on networks. And, and, and Putin's role in that system has been to balance these clans, to balance these networks. And here he clearly lost control of the situation. And you got to be wondering if people inside the elite are looking and saying, huh, the old man doesn't have it anymore. He can't really control it like he used to. We got to find a new godfather. That's what I, that's where, that's kind of my two cents about what I, I think is, it would be a likely kind of uh, sequence of events for regime change. Murray, you indicated you wanted to say something. I would actually uh, add a little bit to what you just said, uh, Brian. To me, it's more like a loss of uh, monopoly on violence and uh, specifically given in mind that mm. uh, the PMC's private military contractors have become very popular in Russia these days. Apparently, if you, you're not cool if you don't have one anymore, like uh, there's Gazprom has one, uh, Rosneft has one, has one, et cetera, et cetera. They're multiplying. It's very easy to envision a scenario echoing somewhat the 1990s, right? When there is some um, uh, conflict, some usually resource-based conflict, so somebody has not been able to accept, agree on the resource division. Uh, and uh, that sort of escalates, right? These conflicts are more likely now that the economy is stagnating or declining. And uh, when it escalates, you can see easily that uh, some forces will be involved, right? In which, say, FSB maybe has not so much, doesn't have such a big role as it used to have in the day. In the day. So it's more, to me, it's more like the chaos and destabilization of the 1990s mm -hmm. time, if one can imagine. But one quick point uh, that I wanted to also uh, make, to add um, to what Jeff said, is um, all, like for me, one big puzzle, watching uh, Russia's power vertical for years has been why is FSB or security services more broadly so paranoid about any, you know, expression of dissent, any disagreement? Like, why do they have to go to all the way down to the maybe the smallest, the tiniest person uh, who disagrees? 
because it's pretty clear, right, that they had control, they had all the power and resources. But I think uh, somewhat this question has been answered um, a couple of weeks ago by Picorgian himself when we've seen the hollowness, like hollowness of this support, right? The moment they lose, uh, uh, they lose this uh, monopoly on violence, they no longer have any uh, control because there's no really true emotion. People right. or the elites don't really have vested interest in the, uh, the system as it seems as as much as normal stable autocratic regime probably would have required. And that may explain why they're so vicious going after any dissenting voices because they're afraid to expose that. Yeah, and my, my thought on that has always been Putin Putin is paranoid about a repetition of the late 80s of the perestroika period and any lucidity of controls is going to cause the whole thing to come down. But this kind of kind of brings us full circle to where we are here. And I want to bring Mikhail on in this because I think this is something I'm grappling with right now. You have political change in Russia. I've said over and over again because it's, I'm going to write something up on this. When you have three factors present, you have divided elite, a disaffected public, and an absence of fear. Um, and I think without the fear... This regime is doomed, actually. I think that the fear is the only they used to rely on passive acquiescence, and then it relied on mobilization, and now it's got nothing but fear. But, as Mikhail, as you pointed out, the the system might not be able to withstand a purge. It might bring the whole thing down, and it might, see, it might make all the underbosses and capos in this crime syndicate start looking for another godfather. How do you see that, Mikhail? Well, I think that uh, the fear is still there. Unfortunately, uh, the majority of the elite is still unified by that fear. But at the same time, you you were right saying that that Putin has lost its um, its position as the gar uh, as as the unique guarantor of the stability uh, of the system. So uh, because everyone understands that he created Prigozhin, he loves uh, to be surrounded by the by the enemies. He he loves the rat race. So he organized the rat race between Prigozhin and Shaigu. He was uh, um, creating uh, Prigozhin and he, he was making that puppet uh, and he needed it. And then uh, um, Pinocchio dis realized that he was a real boy. Uh, um, <laughs> Prigozhin, uh, from being a puppet, became very real politician. And, and Putin was, we we can imagine that Putin is surrounded by by different um, different people who are reporting to him and like uh, bringing him dossiers on uh, one another on a daily basis. So during the, the several months, everyone was telling him that Prigozhin is getting ready for the mutiny, and and Putin didn't believe. And then uh, um, another. Brilliant piece of uh, of, any, of information I've I've got from from my sources, and I've written about, about it uh, uh, for the New York Times that on the day of Prigozhin mutiny, he left Moscow for Saint Petersburg because he uh, he was uh, at his uh, friend's Yuri Kovalchuk's boat, mm -hmm. and there was a party, and the, there was so-called scarlet sail um, scarlet sails yes holiday of. Um, uh, high school graduates, and that's pathetic. That's the sign that the top of that elite is really far in the outer space. Putin, Kovalchuk, and his um, uh, there in a circle, they are really far from something that we used to call 
Russian uh, elite, Russian business elite, Russian bureaucratic elite, they understand that that they are on the ground and they are having trouble and they are uh, there was a catastrophe uh, with the war in Ukraine. There is another catastrophe from Kagoshin, and they see that the the most rich and the most influential guys are somewhere with the, the scarlet sails <laughs> on the Neva. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, what are Putin's options right now, Mikhail? Though, as you see him, what could he do? What are the possible scenarios? I mean, he could crack down and have a purge. Although we think we wonder if the system could withstand that. He could double down and basically buy everybody off. I'm not sure how effective that's going to be. He could try to muddle through, or we can get into a situation where the other the other underbosses look for a new godfather. What are what do you see as Putin's options right now? Uh, you know, normally, I we we don't know if if this Putin is is the usual Putin, or may, maybe something. Yeah. Has I, I do not believe in double gangers, but uh, yeah, maybe something has changed. Uh, normally, Putin would distract the attention. Normally, if if he is suspected uh, for being weak, or he feels that someone uh, considers him to be too weak, he would strike uh, in the abs- absolutely different direction. So mm-hmm. I I would be afraid of some uh, uh, international turbulence. Mm-hmm. I, uh, he um, he cannot attack Ukraine. He cannot um, uh, nuke. So probably, but 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 still, I think that there's something horrible, something really dramatic can, can happen, uh, not domestically, not in Russia, and not on the front line, or probably that that could be another Kahovka um, power station or something like th- something compared to that. So so I guess that his initial reaction would not be um, connected with with Prigozhin and connected with the mutiny. That would be something very serious. But but very different, Jeff. What about that? Should we really be on the lookout for some kind of international provocation for that Putin might use to distract attention here? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable concern. Um, you know, look, I was in Georgia over a year ago now, uh, so in the first months of the war, and was interviewing people about how they saw developments in Ukraine. And one of the refrains that I heard over and over again was, whatever happens in Ukraine, good, bad, or ugly, we're next. Now, I think there have been some political developments in Georgia over the last year that make it less likely that something's going to happen there. But I think the underlying sentiment that, you know, either an emboldened Russia is going to look to go on the offensive to clean up other, as the Kremlin sees it, unfinished business left over from the Soviet collapse, or a weakened, distracted, and humiliated Kremlin is going to go looking for compensation somewhere else, uh, whether that's Georgia or Moldova or, you know, take your pick, um, is, is Belarus. What, well, <laughs> Belarus, they've already got to a significant degree. Although I think a succession is coming in Belarus. I mean, Kashyyyk does not look well. Um, yeah. um, but I mean, in, in, yeah, you, you, it would be interesting if, if Lukashenko were to vanish from the scene in the midst of all of this. Um, you know, already I think there are questions about just how much sovereignty Belarus has. I mean, the fact that Russia has decided to deploy nuclear weapons there suggests that um, that sovereignty is is dramatically compromised, much more so than it was, you know, on February 22nd, 20, uh, February 2022. Um, but yeah, I, I think the possibility of some kind of, of 
incident or provocation outside of, of Russia's borders uh, in the event of, of political crisis at home is, is very real. The Western Balkans is another place I would be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. um, Bosnia. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's worth keeping an eye out on, on all of these things. We don't know what the trigger for something like that is going to be. And certainly the conventional military is, is rather badly tied down uh, with right. the, the operations in Ukraine. But Russia has a lot of other tools and techniques that can, it can employ as well. And, you know, you mentioned the FSB and SVR, all of the other uh, special services um, and the various proxies that they control um, still uh, are in place and still have the, the capacity to, to do a lot. It doesn't take a lot of people to carry out some kind of, of right. communication. And these things, in, in, in contrast to like a regular conventional war, which we're, we're learning that Russia is quite inept at, they're very good at these hybrid operations, right? So yeah, I would keep, I think the Western Balkans is something to keep an eye on. Maria, something that's been missing from our discussion up until now that I wanted to bring you in to talk about since you are the expert on this, what about the Russian people? What about Russian society? Is, is civil society dead? Is Russian society not even a factor in this? Is it a passive actor or is it a sleeping giant that's going to awaken? Uh, to me, and unfortunately for a while, yeah, I think it's in... Uh passive actor and one that unfortunately seems to be following the floor, uh, going with the flow of the events rather than shaping them. And by the way, the Russians themselves sort of acknowledge it. Notice how they kind of repeatedly sort of well, argue that they don't have any agency in this, right? That's one of the big debate in Russia about this responsibility for this war. They always claim they have nothing to do with this and this is general attitude. But unfortunately, that means they have no, nothing to do with anything at all uh, that's happening in the country. In some ways, I think the war, uh, the, sorry, the, the precaution mutiny situation has demonstrated that quite nicely. Uh, the behavior of people and Rostov, right, uh, was such right. that they, mm, it was a fun development for them, uh, right? They did not really maybe understood how serious it was, but even if they did, most just interpreted that as some sort of, you know, fun, taking pictures. I was particularly impressed by, like, girls in beautiful gowns because it was the celebration of the end of the high school taking pictures with this Wagner soldiers armed with weapons on their background just comes to show how like maybe late what sort of late the laid back attitude uh, that they had and if anything uh Prigozhin actually um, almost enjoyed certain popular support uh in the um uh, in the region uh but then of course uh that's the case because it wasn't clear where the status quo is. The propaganda was in disarray. Even um, the chief propagandists, they disappeared from, um, they were nowhere to be found. Uh, Margarita Simonian, editor-in-chief right. of RT, most prominently disappeared and then re-emerged on Monday when apparently she received the orders on what to say and how to comment on the situation, saying, sorry, I was on vacation. Oh, wow, uh, something did, did something happen oh, here? Something happened. <laughs> something happened. Uh, and uh, I think that was reflective of the general uh, mood of the elites and the society writ large. Nobody has received any orders at that the sort of, um, and under that situation, in that situation, they don't know what to do. All right. They just right. Uh, go with the flow and look where the power center is. And I think this is key. Under certain situations when the flower center will uh, fly away, like move away from Putin, I think it will take very short time for the public and for the broader public and the elites uh, once they figure that out to switch their loyalties, which is both fragility and strength, I'd say, of this regime. 
Yeah, no, Marie, you know, something I've I've always noticed in my you know, over the years observing Russian politics and societies. Russian Russian people have this uncanny knack for smelling where Vlast is. Yeah, exactly. and they don't know they don't know where Vlast is. They don't know where power is right now. Before we move into the second half, Michal and Jeff, do you have any thoughts on this 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 dynamic between the society and the state? And is the society basically off the board now? Is is, is it dead for 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 all intents and purposes politically? Mikhail, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that um, majority of Russian people are still horrified. So I think that uh, we we know that the majority is not supporting the war because we uh, um, and yeah, actually Evgeny Prigozhin who was recruiting uh, prisoners from um, from uh, from Russian jails to uh, because uh, there were no volunteers who wanted uh, to fight in Ukraine. That was the best proof that. There were no huge crowds of uh, people supporting the war and wishing to to go and die in Ukraine. So, uh, so yes, majority is not supporting the war. Majority is really scared. Majority tries to pretend that nothing is happening. They are they would love to hide under their beds and just to pretend that uh, business as usual is still possible. Um, my 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 friends, independent journalists who who are still uh, in Moscow, um, working for no, uh, Nova Gazeta, um, uh, sh- shared with me their emotion that for the first time uh, that Saturday they they were sitting in uh, in a street um, cafe in uh, in the center of Moscow discussing uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and in the and th- that that was Saturday. The moment when then uh, Prigozhin's troops were marching towards Moscow, and for the first half an hour, they were the only people in uh, in the huge restaurant uh, to be talking about that. But within an hour, everyone started mm-hmm. talking about that, and it was visible that that was probably the first moment uh, since the beginning of the war when the taboo of discussing uh, uh, politics. Mm-hmm was over because no one was public publicly discussing the war for almost a year and a half and that evening uh that day on saturday um the june 24th everyone's that's interesting yeah like you know uh like like a cork from the bottle of champagne it was it was over yeah yet they they wanted to discuss it so so people started shouting and and screaming at each other discussing uh Revolution, mutiny, uprising. What's happening? Is is Krigorzhin going to invade Moscow or not? And that, and then it was gone the next day. Uh huh. So it's almost like a, a switch flip. Jeff, Jeff, any thoughts on this before we shift gears? Well, I would say that you know I haven't been to to Russia since the war started, so it's it's a little hard for me to have you know the kind of granular view of what's going on at the society level. I will say that. One of the differences that we see now compared to, say, the late Soviet era uh, is that there really has been such a aggressive crackdown against civil society that, you know, whatever people think or say or discussing around their kitchen tables, the ability to organize and transmit those ideas and, and preferences into actual outcome is much more restrained than it's been for the last 30 plus years. And I think that that, you know, is in some ways to the regime's advantage in the sense that it makes it harder for there to be a kind of organized opposition. 
But on the other hand, I think it also contributes to this fragility because it means that people have sort of atomized. They're not invested in uh, preservation of the status quo. They don't have any sort of, of link to it. Um, and if there is going to be some kind of, of big change brought in from uh, mutiny or whatever other kind of black swan there is, I think as, as we've been discussing, the inclination of, of most people under their circumstances is probably going to be to go along and adapt to whatever the new order of things is. Right. And that's a good, that's a good note to, to shift gears on. And we are truly in a unique moment right now. Um, in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at an important article by one of our guests that argues that what looked like Russia's democratic experiment back in the 1990s was actually nothing but an illusion and what that means going forward. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington is my old friend Maria Snegovaya, a senior fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walt School of Foreign Service, and the author of the recently published article, Why Russia's Democracy Never Began, which we will be discussing in this segment. Also joining us from Berlin is Mikhail Zigar, a columnist for Der Spiel, founding editor-in-chief of the independent Russian TV news channel Dusht, and author of the must-read books All the Kremlin's Men, and the recently published War in Punishment, Putin Zelensky and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. And also joining us from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff a distinguished research fellow at the, at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. We should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. And you can also now follow us on threads at Power Vertical. If you don't follow us there yet, please do. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин на свой видеосвязи. не слушал. Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники so in the remaining time i wanted to dive into the past a bit in an effort to shed some light on the present and some perspective on the future maria just published what i consider a must-read piece in the journal of democracy titled why russia's democracy never began and to get us rolling i'd like to read what i consider to be this article's money quote so i'm quoting Maria, to all of you right now, quote, from Yeltsin himself all the way down to the lower ranks, Russian officialdom came straight out of the Soviet nomenclatura. Nearly every executive representative, regional, economic, and military structure in Russia remained in the hands of those who had run it when the USSR still existed. The Soviet foreign and defense ministries, along with many other Soviet-era agencies, saw little personnel turnover. The KGB split into the into the Federal Security Service and the Foreign Intelligence Service, but similar Soviet-trained Siloviki ran both. My own analysis has shown that through the 1990s, elites rooted in the Soviet nomenclatura 
spilled 80 and 90 percent of all seats on Russia's Security Council, the, the Federation's main policymaking bodies. Maria, first of all, congratulations on an excellent and important piece. Could you kind of flesh out your argument? I read the money quote uh, for our listeners, but I want to we want you to flesh it out and kind of have Mikhail and Jeff weigh in on this, because I, I do think this is an important article. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. Well, obviously, everything that's, in, that's been unraveling uh, since last year calls for some reinterpretation uh, of uh, Russia's uh, most recent history, right? Obviously, we've gotten something wrong about Russia, given the fact how um, horrendous uh, the um, situation, the history has unraveled. So what I argue is actually go back uh, in the days and uh, look at Russia, not for the lenses of, you know, individual leaders, it's all Yeltsin's fault or it's all Putin's fault, but I'm actually some structural characteristics of early 1990s Russia's regime that help explain subsequent Russian failures to modernize, which I think is what we actually tend to observe right now. And uh, when you look at the like measurable indicators, that is the composition of the institutions, the composition of the elites, uh, then we see that uh, maybe conventional wisdom that actually tended to interpret uh, Russia as um, um, this case of incomplete or compromised democratization, where there was some balance between the position and the um, uh, old school elites, uh, and that's why there was a lot of polarization and things did not move forward. I think that might be, we might want to reinterpret a little bit uh, that uh, vision of Russia. In fact, as I show, to really uh, be talking of the radical uh, alternation of the institutions from the Soviet times to really be talking, like Russia really does not provide a lot of ground for that. And the statistics is very telling, right? The elites were essentially the same, if anything, uh, the nomenclature of the Soviet uh, ruling class that, uh, by the way, for our audiences, during the Soviet times only represented one to 3% of Soviet society. So it's a tiny, tiny minority right. of the population disproportionately held on to power. If anything, uh, there was an input of the split within the nomenclature itself, given the economic crisis in which late Soviet Union found itself, and given the uh, also uh, the fact that uh, uh, many of uh, rulers of the so late Soviet Union tended to die in power because of their old age. So there were no social lift for younger groups within this ruling uh, elites to provide to power. There was some impetus to reform itself within the system. Uh, that's why Yeltsin, essentially a more pro-reformist, uh, representative of a more pro-reformist uh, uh, group of the Melkotura, effectively launched the reforms. But beyond uh, that, there was no actual agency, for example, on the side of the civil society, to push forward elite rotation. And the numbers are very telling. Even in early 1990s, uh, during the first three elections, the only places where a dependent or Russian opposition at the time has been able to secure some victories for bigger millionaire cities. They failed to capture any regional legislation. And unfortunately, if you look at what Russia today represents, you see there's a lot of continuity on that. To the extent that there is a position in Russia, it's also tends to be concentrated only in big cities. So we shouldn't be really surprised that was the case. Yeah, I know, Marie, your piece, it, it basically put numbers and data on something that I always intuitively thought to be true. So this is what it kind of confirmed something that I've, I, I, I had long suspected. And we're, when you look at this, you say, OK, nothing has changed, really. The fix was in, despite the facade of, quote unquote, democracy. And in these conditions, the rise of some revanchist regime is almost inevitable. Mikhail, you've been a keen observer of the Russian elite for a long time. You actually wrote a great book 
on the Russian elite. Um, how how do you how, how do you react to Maria's argument? You know, I I agree. I I think that uh, uh, I think Maria has just nailed it. Uh, yes, uh, there is a myth in Russia that uh, there were nineties and. Uh, that was a sacred period of democracy and there was freedom and uh, that's a golden era uh, in Russian history um, was so promising. I, I do not agree with that. Unfortunately, uh, I think that that 90s is the, the decade of the lost chances mm-hmm. and we have to blame uh, President Yeltsin and we have to blame his his family, his inner circle. We have to blame every... like. Uh, all those people who are some of them are are now considered to be the the saint petros of russian democracy the the liberal saints unfortunately uh, those people played very um divisive role in uh in our history and they are to blame for uh for russia that is that was not democratic country back in 90s and uh, actually, they uh, they took the power and gave it to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, no, it's and as somebody who covered the Russia of the '90s as a as a foreign correspondent in both Moscow and Saint Petersburg, again, everything here really, really rings true. Jeff, this suggests something uh, that myself and others have been arguing for a while: that we just don't have a Putin problem; we have a Russia problem that will probably endure after Putin is gone. Because what Maria basically shows in this piece is the i mean it's the 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 manifestation of the system kind of reproducing itself right um and and this so this is something that's going to endure now at the risk of being essentialist um, which i don't want to do does this suggest that this is an intractable problem um is russia incorrigibly revisionist because that's what this seems to suggest so i mean pull me back from the ledge here jeff if you will (laughs) well i mean keeping in mind that that I wrote a book about imperial legacies and how imperial institutions have reproduced themselves over the course of, of several centuries. Um, I'm probably not the best person to talk you away from that ledge. Um, I will say though that you know institutions matter, um, and you know the individuals are are one thing, but the institutions that shape incentives and that train individuals and that employ individuals uh, play a big role as well. Um, and I think, you know, what we have in the transition from the late Soviet to the early post-Soviet period is that a lot of those institutions remained intact, um, and continued to, as you put it, reproduce themselves. And now, you know, in some ways are creating a a new generation that's embodies or that it's imbued with some of the same ideas and, and ideologies. So in that sense, I do, I do think it's a, it's a long-term problem. Um, and it's one that's not unique to Russia. It's just unfortunate that Russia is a big nuclear armed country uh, that occupies an extremely important geographic space. Uh, so the problem of Russian revisionism is a bigger problem than the revisionist impulses that exist in, in a lot of other places. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about continuities over time, and you often hear that Russia's gone through two big uh political upheavals over the course of the 20th century there was 1917 when the czarist empire collapsed and there was 1991 when the soviet uh empire collapsed and compared to 1917 i think it's important to keep in mind that 1991 was nowhere near 
as disruptive. It was nowhere near as clean a break with the past. Um, and so you had much more of that old system and old institutions carry over uh, into into the new era. And of course, even after 1917, there was still a fair bit of, of that carryover. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think what this suggests is that institutions, political cultures are sticky over time uh, and short of, you know, real radical upheaval and, and breaks, they, they do have this tendency to reproduce themselves. And the places that have sort of been shorn of those kind of revanchist impulses are places like you know, Germany or Japan, uh, which had to go through utter military defeat, occupation, and the fundamental reconstruction of their states under outside tutelage to get there. And I don't think that that's in the offing for Russia. Uh, so that's not a, a super optimistic story, but uh, I think that's probably the reality that we're going to be facing. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting, Jeff, that you mentioned 1917, because if you look at Russia historically, Lenin is the only Russian leader that came to power from the outside. Right? Everything else was an inside job, basically. Um, everything else was an inside job. Maria, you wanted to say something? You, you, you uh, just a couple of words, yeah, in terms of implications going forward. First of all, it's not, as Jeff mentioned, it goes beyond just Russia. In the early 1990s, there was a lot of, unfortunately, ungrounded optimism about how democracy was going to unravel in many other regions. Uh, Post-Soviet space, I think, is very much comparable to Africa, where we also expected somewhat naively uh, the entrenchment of democracy while the conditions were not there. It was weakening, temporary weakening of autocratic regimes. Having said that, shall another temporary weakening of autocratic regime emerge in Russia, maybe as a result of this war, right? Some of the policymaking implications for us is to try and push elite rotation, right? Especially by perhaps assigning certain conditionality to economic aid, uh, for example. And last but not the least, uh, a comparison with other countries in a different project that we're doing, and that's somewhat of a disturbing conclusion, we actually see a lot of parallels between, I mean, not such an original point, between Russia today and also Weimar Republic, mm -hmm. where a similarly continuity of Kaiser elites in power after the Second, First World War actually in, uh, conditions what uh, Jeff uh, calls revisionism, we call it revanchism, in foreign policy. And unfortunately, particularly in light of Prigozhin's mutiny, um, the question uh, then that emerges that is then, if Russia today is wearing a republic, then who is Putin? Is he necessarily Hitler? Or is Hitler is just in the making, right? And that's why Prigozhin mutiny actually uh, launched a lot of these unpleasant questions. Going forward, I think we also need to be concerned that that question is on the plate. We may not have seen the worst possible that Russia yeah. is able to give. Yeah, no, we could we could be heading to an even darker place. Jeff, you wanted to say something? Yeah, well, I was going to say that the international comparisons are really interesting. I, I think, of course, the comparisons that are normally made with Russia in the 90s are the former Soviet satellites, uh, many of which are now EU and NATO members in Central and Eastern Europe. And the picture there is obviously mixed, but in terms of the durability of the democratic transitions, you know, even in pretty flawed democracies like, say, Poland, um, I think you've seen a lot more uh, of that fundamental transformation than you have in Russia or in the, the African cases mm -hmm. that Maria pointed to. And I, I think part of that actually has to do with the opportunities that these countries had to integrate with Western structures. Uh, NATO, yes, but also the European Union. Um, I think that the access to markets, to uh, opportunities for travel, 
uh, kind of openness and participation in these institutions with the conditionality that came along with that was one of the things that really helped ensure that the transitions that that took place in, in the Central and Eastern European countries that were under Soviet domination uh, was successful. And so, you know, thinking about a future scenario for dealing with Russia, obviously Russia's not going to be a member of the European Union. It's not going to be a member of NATO. But I think there has to be some, you know, consideration for how a Russia that is going through a political transition where there is some kind of a window of, of opportunity, uh, the way that existed in the 1990s can be handled uh, in such a way that creates those kind of incentives for democracy to take hold and for more of a, a political restructuring to take place. Now, that would, of course, be contingent on that 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 transition is in the correct direction. And the, what Maria is suggesting, and it might be in the other direction. I'm watching the clock closely, and Je I know, Jeff, you have got to go. Mikhail, I'm going to give the last word to you before we wrap it up for the week. Any any final thoughts? Uh, thank you so much. You know, I I love uh, historical parallels uh, as well, but I'd like to stress that um, if we if we compare Russia after the collapse of Soviet Union to for example, Germany after the end of this uh, World War II, uh, there is one important thing that uh, th there was a lot of talk about some kind of Marshall Plan for Russia, and that didn't happen. And uh, the first liber liberal government of uh, Igor Gaidar was uh, was very active, and all of them, their memoirs are always talking about that uh, West didn't help Russia, West abandoned us, uh, uh, they're complaining uh, for that. Uh, yes, there were a lot of problems domestically, but at the same time, yes, we 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 cannot uh, we cannot we can't, cannot deny that uh, the West really, uh, for some mysterious reasons, believed in President Yeltsin and didn't uh, <laughs> didn't didn't try to direct him, didn't try to uh, correct him, didn't try to to help Russian uh, democracy and Russian uh, uh, economy to become some kind of post-war. German economy, and um, I hope that there will be the, the second chance. I do not believe that that, that we are now uh, uh, witnessing way more Russia. I think that uh, uh, we're much closer to the um, 1918, 1919, uh, mm. the the less the least known period uh, in Russian history over the 20th century, the civil war, the moment when uh, Russia broke up into a lot of uh, separate republics. So I think that uh, the, um, the new effort, the new international effort to bring Russia back uh, to normal uh, to normal situation, because Russia is, uh, is not going to sink, is not going to depart from Europe. Uh, probably it's not fit to be the part of the European Union, but it will remain there. So I think um, um, that's something that uh, I hear s sometimes from from different people from Russian uh, political and especially business elite, what to do when Putin is gone? They are trying to they are trying to think of the plans of the strategies, what to do in Russia after Putin. I know that probably no one is ready for that uh, in the West or in Russia, but it's it's right time it's to come. No, it's coming. And I, my last thought would be that you mentioned the 1917 to 1922 period. I also find this period very fascinating, Mikhail. And it's very fascinating to me because it was in this period that we had this first attempt at Ukrainian independence, Georgian independence, and Belarusian independence. And we know how it went in 22, in 1922. Um, but it seems to be going in a different direction, hopefully. 
from 2022. I'm watching the clock. Maria, you want to have one last word? Uh, word uh, to sum up what uh, Mikhail has said. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen historically, right, since 1990s, uh, the Western effort to park Russia, to sort of forget it, to outsource it to somebody else, like with Yeltsin, and sort of put it in the closet and forget about it, we focus on other things that matter. It never worked out. Russia <laughs> had to forget about it. And unfortunately, Russia cannot remain its own problem. It has a way of becoming everybody's problem. <laughs> so unless we figure it out, and I think that's what my article also comes to demonstrate, Unless we uh, realize that, unfortunately, it's our common problem, not just Russia's only problem, uh, things will not change, and we need to keep thinking about it. That's that's one big takeaway I'd like everybody to, 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 to have. On that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Ryan Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington has been Maria Snegovaya, a senior fellow for, in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service and the author of the recently published article, Why Russia's Democracy Never Began. Also joining us from Berlin has been Mikhail Zigar, a columnist for Der Spiegel, founding editor-in-chief of the independent Russian TV news channel, Gorscht, and author of the must-read books, All the Kremlin's Men, and the recently published War and Punishment in Putin Zelensky and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine, which I hope will be discussed sometime in the future on this podcast once I get a chance to read it. And also joining us from Washington's historical Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and must-read book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also note again that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Thank you all for an enlightening discussion. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order for our discussion. And Zachary Bell, who handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power, Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. And now you can follow us on Threads at Power Vertical. Please do. Please join Threads and follow the Power Vertical because we are now on Threads. Uh, join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that prepared by our production team. 